There's a battle going on for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. On Ladies Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. Ladies Can We Talk starts now. And welcome to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis. Thanks so very much for tuning in. Well, on this new show clock, I have exactly seven minutes in the starting segment. And I want to jump right in and talk to you about something really important that is going on in America. And in fact, a lot of you probably followed the story this week involving a gentleman who works for the President of the United States. His name is Ben Rhodes. I'm going to back up and just give you a little bit of context for this story. Imagine if you were President Obama and you've been elected and you began your service in 2009 and you wanted more than anything else to negotiate a deal with Iran, the country of Iran. But you knew that, for one thing, national polling at the time, 2009, showed that 88 percent of Americans had an un favorable view of Iran. You also knew that Iran was widely known in the defense industry and the foreign service as the single largest terrorist exporting country in the world. They export terrorism. They export funding for terrorists. They are a terrorist sponsoring nation. You also knew that Iran regularly held marches in the streets calling for death to Israel, death to America. And that was your that was the country you wanted to negotiate with, you wanted to come to a deal with. So and this was exactly the position that President Obama found himself in. However, he also had the uh, circumstance in his life, President Obama, of hiring a young man named Ben Rhodes. Enter Ben Rhodes, who is... At the time he became involved in the Obama administration, his previous experience was zero military experience, zero foreign service, zero work in anything related to foreign policy. He was, in fact, a graduate student studying fiction writing. His dream was to be a fiction writer. Yet somehow he ended up in the White House as an assistant to President Obama. He was actually his deputy national security advisor. And Ben Rhodes is... Whatever, however twisted his thinking is, he is a uh, he's a gifted writer. So Ben Rose worked with President Obama and came up with over the years a way not only to justify negotiating with Iran, not only to justify the Iranian deal, which was negotiated by President Obama and the United States and five other countries, but to sell that deal to the American public. All of this came to light and was discussed in a New York Times interview that Ben Rhodes gave recently. Uh, Ben Rhodes was interviewed in a very, very, very lengthy New York Times piece by David Samuels. And David Samuels wrote this glowing, you could practically see the drool in his, off the side of his mouth, talking about how in awe this author of, in the New York Times article was of Ben Rhodes. He's just like this unbelievable genius kid. He's gotten in the White House. He is, in fact, viewed to have a mind meld. That was the word that people in the White House used about Ben Rhodes and President Obama, a mind meld. What Ben Rhodes said in that interview with the New York Times is that he worked to manipulate you, manipulate the American public, manipulate the media, manipulate think tanks. President Obama, through Ben Rhodes, decided that he was going to sell this rotten deal with Iran to the American people by what Ben Rhodes described as an echo chamber in the media. He created an echo chamber and had people in the media happily, because they were sycophants, repeating everything that they were told to say about this Iranian deal, even though every expert you can possibly imagine here in reality world was saying, this is terrible. And let me just cut to the chase what the Iranian deal did what the Iranian deal actually brought to America. The Iranian deal that we negotiated included essentially enabling Iran 
to have nuclear weapons, exactly the opposite of what the deal was supposed to do. It allowed Iran to do its own inspections of those nuclear sites. So instead of the world concerned about Iran having authority to get in and look at these nuclear sites, Iran inspects its own sites. It's kind of like giving the prisoners in a prison the keys and saying, now don't get out. You hold on these keys, but don't get out. It also allowed the transfer back to Iran of approximately $150 billion, with a B, dollars in frozen assets, giving them more money to continue to fund terrorism. And this, uh, this deal, which was criticized widely by actual military experts, criticized by people like James Woolsey, John Bolton, uh, Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin, Claire Lopez, Frank Gaffney, people with actual knowledge of what Iran was all about were screaming from the rooftops, as was the president of France, President Hollande, who was part of the deal, who kept trying to say in the media, what are you doing? We, we, we entered, this, entered this negotiation and gave them everything they wanted. But here's the bottom line, folks. So the story goes in the New York Times. It's an outrage. Many insulting comments made about Congress by Ben Rose to the New York Times. Say we couldn't work with Congress. We had to work around him. Largely acknowledging he engaged in a major league manipulation of the American people to get the deal done. Congress asked to have Ben Rose come and testify, requested that Ben Rose come and testify before the House, uh, I don't have the name of the committee, but with the House committee, and um, and Ben Rose is declining, President Obama is declining. So here are your takeaways. This is an outlandish and honestly dangerous story in America where we are today. We have a president and an administration completely circumvented the Senate. You know, the deal on treaties, as our founders wisely set up in the Constitution, is that any treaty a president enters must go go through the Senate, must get two-thirds of the Senate to agree to it because President Obama knew that no one in their right mind would agree to this Iranian deal. The president just didn't. He called the deal not a treaty. So, folks, here are your takeaways. Do your own research. Trust your instincts. Don't get played by social media. Use your common sense. You were right. The Iran deal was a rotten deal. We're going to zip off to a break, but coming up after a break, we have an interview with Senator Jim DeMint, President of Heritage Foundation, and with a brilliant idea for how people who actually care about getting education for low-income children can get it. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis, and I hope you enjoyed our interview with Senator Jim DeMint. Uh, he is such an impressive thinker, and I, one thing I love about him, he's always able to take oftentimes quite complex ideas and put them in common sense terms, common sense that the average person would say, gee, that makes sense. Just love that. So he was talking with us about uh, educational savings accounts, and we have a guest joining us in a moment, uh, but I just want to say one thing about this whole issue. You know, there is talk every year in the federal level, in Congress, and in state legislatures around the country about the fact that you simply, we talk about income inequality, but really the problem is educational inequality because you can't achieve and thrive in America without a quality education. So people look at ways, uh, concerned people on both sides of the aisle and as American citizens, what do you do to ensure that children, especially in low-income areas, have the best possible education? What can you do? And so we, I have with us on the line tonight Stacy Hawk, and she is a board member of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and she's specifically working on this issue with Texas Public Policy Foundation about education policy. So hello, Stacy. 
Hi, Debbie. Nice to talk to you tonight. Glad to have you on. And, you know, I want to have you, if you would, tell us, you're, I know you're working with Texas Public Policy Foundation. You're a board member there and working on this um, issue. But you, we talked earlier in the week about how educational savings accounts are just the kind of the wave of the future for school choice. So tell us, if you would, what Texas Public Policy Foundation's efforts are all about. How are you trying to get this moving forward in Texas? Well, as you pointed out, education is the bedrock of American society for all of us. And here in Texas, we feel that there is a lot of room for improvement in the opportunities that we're providing our children today for education. And what we found at TPPF is through empirical research that children do do better when given a choice. You know, as educational choice grows, so does the evidence proving it works. And so we feel that it is time for Texas, although we may be a late adopter, it is time for us to embrace the research and open up opportunity for, for more higher quality educational seats for all students. And looking across the 30 plus states that have private school choice programs and other kinds of parent empowerment programs, we do feel that education savings accounts are the vehicle of the future. It, they provide the most flexibility and the greatest parent empowerment to piecing together the right educational solution for their unique child. It's very simple as far as the process and the auditing goes. It's guaranteed funds, unlike some of the uh, tax credit scholarship programs and others that have been enacted. And um, it hopefully provides an innovative platform for new service providers to come into this space and really create a more innovative marketplace for education services. I love that. One theme that Texas Public Policy Foundation always stresses is to maximize liberty, to let the free market work. And I would think in the area of educational choice, if a school could come into even a low-income area and develop a quality education that isn't a, you know, that isn't a necessarily high dollar, but a quality education that they would entice, they would love, they, if this program were in place and parents had the tax, the dollars available to use for their children's education through an ESA, you would see new schools opening up, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And we're seeing that uh, to some degree in the charter environment today. You know, we've had um, a number of high-performing charter operators in Texas for a while now, and we today have over 120,000 children on charter waitlists in Texas. And that's, you know, only children go on those waitlists who are in the areas where they have an option. We are hearing from parents all over the state that they would like to have more options. It's all about access, and too many of our parents, and especially along socioeconomic lines, are not getting access. It's just so, um, I mean, I love this solution because, and I will tell our listeners, Stacey and I talked on the phone a few days ago, explored all this a little more because I wanted to understand more about it. And it just seems like it's one of those solutions that there, there, there is no logical opposition that the parents get choice. It doesn't cost the taxpayer any more money. Uh, the student holds on to the funds year to year. It incentivizes schools to improve, the existing public schools to improve. I I mean, I I can't even see a downside. Isn't that right? Well, I think that fortunately, like I said, evidence based on data from programs that have been in operation for years now is supporting what we had hoped would be true. I think that traditionally opponents had had concerns that school choice itself would not improve outcomes for students. And what we are finding is that universally, if 
given broad options, students who participate in education options of choice do outperform how they would otherwise. But one of the things I'm most excited about is that there had traditionally been some concerns that we would gut the public school system, that we would draw funds from the public school system, that we would cream, um, quote, the top from the public school system, um, particularly along uh, the higher income families. But what we found is realistically we do already have school choice Families with the means will go to private school. Families with the mobility will move to the suburbs and target specific schools. And by and large, those without those means or without that mobility are the ones that are left without choice in a monopolistic system that's not being productive of results. So the good news is we now have 33 studies on the effects of these educational choice programs on the students who do not participate in, those who stay right where they are in their traditional district school. And what we have found is that those students also outperform how they would have otherwise. So we are seeing that whether it's through competition and innovation that's lifting everyone's boats or whether it's simply by children being, you know, opting into the models that best serve them and that lifting everyone's boats because the teachers and the other resources are allocated to the students that they most effectively serve. Whatever it is, we are seeing all boats rise when given choice options. I love that. And, you know, as I told you on the phone, this 11-minute segment will race by too much, and I don't, I, we still have three and three minutes. I do want to have you tell, if you would, Stacey, uh, about the organization you founded recently, Texans for Educational Opportunity, because it's such a cool idea. So will you share that with us? Yes. So what we have found is that politically it can be a challenge to get these things done, and there's, a, there's staunch opposition to change uh, pretty much all the time, no matter whether you want to change your plans for dinner or if you <laughs> want to change something like the public education system and um, funding, governance, top to bottom. And so where this has been passed, it has taken a political advocacy organization to support the elected political officials to pass this kind of legislation. And so we are doing that because we want to provide them all the cover that they need and we want to activate and give a voice to the parents for what they're crying out for. So Texans for Education Opportunity launched last Thursday, or about a week and a half ago now. Uh, Former Senator Phil Graham is on our board. I am on our board. John Caliandro, who is the head of the Texas Conservative Coalition, is on our board. And we are excited about a number of other folks who are going to be joining us, and we'll be announcing those as we go through the fall and and lead up into session. And you already have a website going, right? What is that? We do. We do. It's Texans. Well, you can do texedopportunity.com or texansforeducationopportunity.com. We're speaking tonight with Stacey Hawk, who is on the board of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And one thing I meant to mention to our listeners, I'm so glad you shared that other states already are, and many states are ahead of us in, in Texas, Nevada having a particularly strong example of an ESA. I think that's great to know. And in Texas, there has been litigation over the years about the funding of public schools. And the Texas Supreme Court issued a great decision very recently. Essentially, it was a school finance ruling, but essentially it said... In Texas, the current funding does meet the constitutional requirement the legislature has 
to provide a good education. So really, it kind of freed the legislators, legislators in Texas from just focusing on a finance plan, and and um, which they still have to do. But I mean, it, it kind of freed them to say, okay, we've opened the door. We're, we're ready to really attack this problem here. It really set the table for them to move forward with a strong emphasis on changing the system and moving toward ESAs. That's correct. It explicitly says Texas would really benefit from having a private choice program. And it, it further, it actually quotes an amicus brief that Senator Graham and I submitted, um, including evidence that shows there is no correlation with higher spend and better outcomes. And that was the reason that the court found that it should, well, among other things, that it did not need to intervene in this particular case and explicitly call for more funding because it's been shown that that alone will not improve outcomes. Choice, on the other hand, is something that we are finding does correlate with better outcomes. Wow. I th- Stacey Hawkeye, thank you so very much. I encourage people to go to the Texas, web- Texas Public Policy website. Tell me, our listeners, quickly, it's texaspolicy.com. Is that it? Well, so, yes, texaspolicy.com is the TPPF website for Texas Public Policy Foundation. Okay, Stacey Hawk, thank you so very much for calling in. Thank you, Debbie. Okay, you know, listeners, I appreciate so much that we can jump around to various subjects on this show. You know, Ladies Can We Talk is all about the idea of embracing the unique and exceptional identity of America to put principles over personality and politics. And after the break, I want to tell you why David Petraeus is saying you should shut up in talking about Islam. Come back after the break. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis. Again, so glad you joined us tonight. We have a very special guest on the line with us tonight, Senator Jim DeMint. And I'm going to quickly tell you about him. I think you probably all know this about him already, but he was a former U.S. congressman from South Carolina, from the 4th District from 1999 to 2005. And then he served in the United States Senate from South Carolina from 2005 to 2013. But now he has the coolest job, which is he is president of the Heritage Foundation in Washington, D.C. Hello, Senator DeMint. Hey, Debbie, it's great to be with you. Great to have you. Thanks so very much. Well, as you know, because you've been on this show a couple of times before, I talk about Heritage Foundation a lot because I'm really, really grateful for the work Heritage does on many issues and actually thinking through substantive policy answers to very serious questions that are, that are premised on or based on a conservative approach to government. So just love it. Well, I could talk with you all day, but I want to focus tonight because we've been thinking about education. And I want to focus tonight. There is a uh, something that's talked about education circles as another vehicle to give parents more control over the choices they have available to them for their children's education. And called they're called ESAs, and I believe as educational savings accounts. And Heritage has been supportive of those. So I hope you can start by telling our listeners what that is. Well, Debbie, I think it's one of the most exciting things uh, that we've worked on in years. Uh, education opportunity is is key for our children to develop the character and skills they need to succeed, and this gives parents more control. Uh, what this is, it's publicly funded education savings accounts that allow parents to not only choose a particular school, but a combination of schools, uh, uh, homeschool tutors, uh, special ed, uh, that they, that parents can put the education together the, the way they want. They can go to a 
parochial school, a, a, a Christian school. They can hire tutors on the side. And what generally happens, and this has been done in, in Arizona, it's been done in Florida, Mississippi, Tennessee. Nevada just did more of a universal education savings account. And so the, the money that's about 90% of the money that they normally spend on a, a child is put in an education uh, savings account for the parent, and the parent shops for the education they want. They can go to a traditional public school if they want. But if they don't spend the money in one year, Debbie, it, it, it just rolls over to the next year. And states like Arizona that have been doing it for a while, they have uh, kids who are now in college that are going to college on leftover funds from education savings accounts. But it's a way to give parents complete control. States actually spend less money, uh, and it's really working well in a lot of uh, about five states now. And we're in Texas working with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, our folks from Heritage and the Friedman Foundation, because if there's one thing that Texas has not done better than other states, it's education. And, and Texas actually has one of those systems in the country where they, have, they pay as many administrators as they do teachers. And it's just not working as well for students as it could. So we're really excited about it, and we want to be all the help we can be so that parents get to put together the best education for their children. I love this concept. I love parental control over the choice of school that their child has, especially as contrasted with uh, systems where we've had in the past where essentially child ended, uh, attends a public school based on their zip code and that causes many families to have multi-generational poverty because kids attend less than stellar public schools. They just don't even get a start in in attending a school that's going to help them get on track to be to be successful in life. So these ESAs are available to people and in fact they're helpful to people especially with lower income areas. Is that right? It's true. It actually helps uh, the poor, uh, the uh, minorities, the folks who are in failing schools. And, and the great things about it is once a lot of education providers know that the parents in this, um, maybe it's a, a low-income neighborhood, that the parents have this money in their accounts, what we're going to see is more and more education choices develop real close to their homes. So different from uh, kind of the old school choice idea where you would just bus or drive a, a, a child to a school way away, this is going to allow a lot of technology. There's so much now available virtually, and if parents were buying computers for uh, their children to, to get courses online, education savings accounts would pay for that. So we can go back to community schools where uh, parents and students can be close, and a lot of new technology and new facilities are going to uh, come to where the children are rather than the children having to go out to some school that's a long way from home. What is the policy answer to the argument that you often hear against ideas like this, that you will have parents who are attentive choosing better education for those kids, for their kids, better schools, using a program like this, and that this will cause the poorer schools, the, the poorer performing schools, and the parents who aren't as involved, it'll cause them to decline, that the good students, the good families will leave, it'll make the public schools worse. What's the answer to that? Well, well Debbie, the good news is t 10 years ago, we, we couldn't argue with that. Now we've got the data um, because... First of all, more choices in education has proven to help public schools in, in almost all cases. 
and what we found is just like in D.C. scholarships um, where uh, the, the poorest of the poor, uh, uh, generally African-American moms, 98% African-American, uh, got their kids out of failing schools and got them in uh, good schools, and there's so many uh, just uh, almost you know tear-jerking of stories now of kids who got out of failing school and, and now they've, they're in college. And so we've got the data to show that this helps public schools because it has they have to get more competitive, and so there, it's a win-win-win for for everyone. And uh, there are not many parents that really don't care about their kids. It doesn't matter how poor they are, what race they are. It, it just a lot of parents feel powerless. And if you if you can't make any difference, then sure you're not going to get involved with your kid's education. Uh, but we've seen parents step up to the plate, um, regardless of their so- socioeconomic status. I just love that you're saying you have data that shows that, because I think there's always in the argument about or the effort that many people from both sides of the aisle and all across the spectrum in America would agree that improving education, especially for poorer children, is the best avenue, the best ticket out of poverty toward prosperity, toward joining the fabulous American economy and American dream. And it has some of these these efforts to do things like this are bogged down by arguments that that, um, somehow this isn't going to be fair to the poorer schools, this isn't going to be fair, it's going to hurt public schools. And I think a lot of those arguments come from teachers' unions, not big in Texas, but other places, who argue against it. The teachers' unions will attack this, uh, the people that are vested in the status quo will attack it. But we've got to get the information out. For, first of all, the education savings accounts were talked about years ago, but they were funded by parents, and, uh, and people weren't that interested because if you don't have money, that's not going to help you. But these are publicly funded. And we also have found in a, in a lot of um, you know, white middle-class neighborhoods that people don't want what they think of as school choice because they think that's just going to mean you're going to be moving kids in from all over town to their schools that they've you know worked real hard to make good. But that's not what education savings accounts do. It allows parents, wherever they are, to create an education environment, um, everything from homeschool to virtual school to private, Christian, parochial, and traditional public schools to put together a combination of education choices that work for their children. So this is, like I said, it's a win-win, and if we can get the right message out to all of Texans, uh, they would see that this is good for literally everyone, that whether you're already paying for a private school, this would help. If you're in a failing school, this would help. And if you just want to stay where you are in a public school, it doesn't change anything. So uh, hopefully, unless the teachers' union get there first and scare everyone, (laughs) that we can get a lot of state legislators and your Speaker of the House, and I know your governor will will support this, but uh, we've already got a good contingent here, and we're going to be working with a lot of people in Texas because the reason it's so important to us at Heritage, and we work on a lot of national issues, if Texas does this right, it could fundamentally change education opportunity in our whole country uh, because we now we've got a few states doing it but if texas which is the big guy on the block does it uh, it's going to be impossible for the people in washington to say oh hey we have to fix this thing from washington when they can't fix it from washington they just make it worse 
Um, so it's, um, I'm glad you gave me a chance to talk about it because we're really excited about the possibility here in Texas. I just love it. One quick thing. When you say publicly funded, it's funded by state tax dollars, correct? Not the national government? No, no. It's, it's just it, the same money you use for public education now. It's just instead of it being given to the school, it's put in the education savings account that the parent controls. And so what we've seen is the states aren't spending any more money. But it, the money is just following the student. Love and this, love this. We are coming yeah. up at the end of our show. We are or end of our segment. We're speaking tonight with Senator Jim Dement, the president of Heritage Foundation. Will you quick tell our listeners where to go to learn more about this on your website? Well, please go to heritage.org. Uh, and obviously, we'd love to have people come into our sites. Uh, and uh, the dailysignal.com is our daily news source, which I think a, a lot of folks would get something out of. But, Debbie, thanks for the opportunity to share this idea that I hope will help Texas a lot. Thank you, Senator DeMint. Can you hear us? And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. Thanks for tuning in. You know, this show, Ladies Can We Talk, I mentioned before the break, The entire reason I wrote my book, Ladies Can We Talk, and I do this radio show is out of genuine love for the greatness, the uniqueness, the exceptionalness of America and wanting to have in every generation, we each have a responsibility in every generation to perpetuate America, to understand why it's great so we can hold on to it and, and perpetuate it so that in our, you know, in our grandchildren's 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 grandchildren can have a great, free, noble, liberty-based country. And Every generation, there are threats to liberty. Well, one of them that's going on right now I want to share in this um, hour, it has to do with this presidential cycle and the discussion about the threats of radical Islam. And you may have noticed that, you may be aware, Donald Trump made a few comments in his... um, during the course of his political campaign, he talked about, I uh, think it's dangerous to bring um, more Islamic immigrants to America, especially from Syria, because you don't know whether they may be ISIS members. ISIS has promised to infiltrate the uh, refugee ranks with terrorists. They've, they said they're doing that. And so Donald Trump has, has said, we've got to be careful, got to watch this. Shouldn't be, in fact, he just said again yesterday, we shouldn't be bringing more uh, refugees to America from Syria. And so the other, the response by... Uh, David Petraeus, which I'll save till after I play this clip coming up, but the response by Hillary Clinton and others has been to say, essentially, you shouldn't say anything bad about Islam. Don't say anything bad about Muslims. You'll just incent, you'll infuriate them. You'll make them more mad. So first I want to play a great thing, a very short clip that Colonel um, Peters, who uh, was being interviewed, I believe it was Colonel Ralph Peters on um, Fox News, what he had to say about this. We deny ourselves free speech every day when we refuse. We're talking about the, you were talking about the Trump protesters and denying him free speech. We deny ourselves free speech every day when we refuse to talk about these issues of critical national importance. Honestly, if you try to discuss Islam's problems, you're automatically an Islamophobe. And as we watch, and you've watched and reported on very, very well what's going on uh, in, in uh, Europe today, as you watch that, you think, my God, how could they have let this happen? And we know one thing for certain. It's not going to end well. That was Colonel Ralph Peters speaking on Fox News. And the reason I want to talk about this is this election cycle is going to have a lot more discussion about Islam, radical Islam, what policy is right about whether or not we should bring more Islamic refugees to America, 
how do we prevent the development in America of neighborhoods like those in Paris, in England, in Austria, in Germany, that are large concentrations of refugees, of Islamic refugees, who simply do not have any interest in assimilating, and who, once they reach a critical mass in a country, become belligerent and demanding and demand the country kowtow to their values. We can't sit here as Americans and watch what's happening in the world and think somehow we're too noble, too self-righteous, too intellectual, too superior that we can't deal with reality. What Donald Trump is doing, and I, as all these listeners know, he's not been my favorite candidate, but I do appreciate his candor. I appreciate his directness on this subject. We can't simply watch what is happening in Europe and think, well, somehow we're, we're in America because we have freedom of religion we can't point out that Islam is the source of virtually all the terrorist attacks in the world. It is Islam that is inspiring ISIS. But one particular thing, point I want to get to, it's a nuanced point, but I want to tell you about this and then sh- uh, share a clip. I hosted a, a different radio show this week, uh, this past week, and I had as a guest on that show Bill Federer. And Bill Federer is a nationally renowned expert. On, he's, a, uh, he's a prolific author. He's written over 20 books. He speaks around the country all the time time. He is a, an, an expert on Islam. He has read the Quran. He has studied the history of Islam throughout the time of its founding from the 600, 600 AD era up until now and the history of the Islamic aggression in the world. And in that interview, I talked to him about, you know, well, the argument that Hillary Clinton and others on the left make is that if we in America say anything bad about Islam, Muslims, anything that we simply are inciting violence, we're causing violence to occur. And Bill Federer, the expert on Islam, had this to say. I don't want you to hear what he had to say. And so in Islam, the world's divided into two, the half that has submitted and the half that's in the process of submitting. It's called the Dar al-Islam and the Dar al-Harb, the house of war. So the non-Muslim world is supposed to be at war because it's transitioning to become the house of Islam. Now, people say, what about moderate Muslims? That's true. There's lots of Muslims that are moderate. They think the world will submit to Allah later. Maybe in the distant future, maybe at the end of the world, maybe it's even figurative. And since it's so far off in the distant future, they really don't think about it. They just want to live their lives. That's fine. That type of Muslim has no problem living in a free democratic society and having you as a coffer infidel as a neighbor. The fundamental Muslim, on the other hand, they think the world is supposed to submit to Allah now. And they're really excited and they want to help make it happen. Now, the dilemma we face in the West is the more we bend over backwards in unprecedented ways to show ourselves nice and accommodating and friendly and really sensitive not to offend them, the moderate Muslim begins to rethink and say, this has never, ever happened before. Maybe the world is, in fact, submitting to Allah now rather than later. And so they gravitate from the future peaceful moderate camp into the fundamental now camp, which is the violent camp. So all of our efforts to be really careful not to offend them is actually creating more violence. You know, I only played that short clip in this interview I have with Bill Federer. I'm going to actually put this up. We have a Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page and ladieskanwetalk.org website. And I'll put a link to the entire interview up because it was fascinating when I, w- I did this host this other radio show this week the calls I mean I didn't want to take any calls during that interview because 
it, it was spellbinding. But the calls were people calling in and saying to the call screener, who is this guy? Where's his website? How can we find him? Because he just was extremely familiar with, with in-depth the history of Islam, the history of violence Islam has brought to the world. And essentially his point was Islam in its teachings, in its fundamental teachings, in its following of the life of Muhammad, which is who is their leader, um, it is glorifying violence it's glorifying the or it is telling you the right idea is to commit jihad to kill the infidel to to force the infidel being anyone who's not muslim to kill or convert this is what islam has been since its inception and so at various points in history it has been calmer it has been less aggressive but we're obviously living in an era of extreme islamic aggression it's it's evidence in the in isis it's evidence in the violent uh, conduct within america's borders by uh, at the Boston Marathon bombing, at that um, officer's center in uh, Tennessee, I can't remember the name of it, um, and at Fort Hood and in and, um, in California, San Bernardino. So in this election cycle, back to this election cycle, we have to be insistent that we are going to permit the free speech upon which America is founded, and we are not going to cower in fear of having our elected officials talk about the dangerous Posed by bringing large numbers of Islamic refugees to America. We have to have our eyes open with, with watching what's happening in Europe. We have to recognize Europe thought the same thing that many of us are thinking now. We're just being nice. We're just bringing refugees who need help. We'll just let them come here. Surely they don't mean our culture any harm. They'll come in. They'll become one of us. They'll assimilate. And what has happened since Islam began, began they do not wish to assimilate. It is, it is not part and parcel of their faith. Now, I'm not saying in this show that we should never have any Muslim refugees to America ever again. I am saying it is outrageous and wrong for Hillary Clinton and other people on the left to say that we, you know, that is, you can't even mention that Islam is a problem because you'll turn, you'll turn moderate Muslims to violence. Just the opposite is true, according to Bill Federer and other experts, which is if you signal weakness, if you signal that we really want to accommodate and bend over backward, that actually triggers violence. It does exactly the opposite of what Hillary Clinton claims. I want to quick mention David Petraeus because he's been in the news recently. He did a big op-ed talking about how he really thinks we have to, sh- and his expression is shut up about Islamism. He wrote, he wrote a, an article titled Anti-Muslim Bigotry Aids Islamist Terrorists. He's making the same Hillary kind of argument. And you know, in addition to the fact I really urge you to listen to this Bill Federer clip I'm going to put up on Ladies Can We Talk, I also want to point out to you that the way uh, Petraeus is speaking in this article, it echoes the language by the Council on Islamic uh, Council on American Islamic Relations, a terrorist sponsoring, a terrorist friendly organization, CARE in America. Um, it also it echoes other very uh, pro Islamic organizations' language. And one thing that was just breathtaking when you read this article, and you think, well, gee, here's a really informed military hero, a leader. You know, he sure must have had. He's got good reasons, and he's saying we should never, ever, ever speak ill of, of um, Islam or Muslims. But let me. Just just tell you something that he doesn't he didn't put in the article and i think actually kind of changes everything general david petraeus now works for kkr kolberg kravis roberts and company it is an organization that is attempting they are a um 
they are a, finan- a global investment firm, and they are attempting to expand their markets into Dubai and other Muslim-majority countries, Dubai and Saudi Arabia in particular. And both those states have been encouraging. Uh, they, they don't, they want, they're trying to crush any negative savings by Islam. So David Petraeus has a business interest in encouraging Americans not to speak up about Islam. But folks, we have a duty to protect this country our country, United States of America, and we have in a presidential cycle an absolute duty to speak up about the dangers America faces, to be able to talk about how perhaps we can better vet potential Islamic immigration to America. We can't be told to be quiet for any reason whatsoever. Political correctness, free speech, freedom of religion, whatever the argument is, we do have in this right in this country not only a right but an obligation to keep our country safe, and so do our elected officials and candidates. Okay, we're near the top of the hour. I'm quick, tell you some quick things I want to mention. I usually do a cruise through the news in this segment. It was National Police Week last week, uh, so yay for the police. We love the police. Yesterday was Armed Force Services Day. We sure appreciate our, our armed services people. Um, and I also want to mention the second hour, I have my leading ladies join me. Two of them join me this week. I have Lori Medina and Mari Sullivan. And these ladies are just political activists like I am. They, uh, we cr- try to get together. We decode political talk, hash out headlines, talk foreign policy. We are pro-women. We are pro-America. And we love our families and our husbands and our children. And we try to talk truth about America every single moment. So right after the break, we'll talk to you some more about America. In fact, we're going to turn to the question, should Donald Trump stop talking about Bill Clinton's love life? for our second hour roundtable on Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. Thank you so very much for tuning in. So we're in our second hour roundtable. Yay. So tonight I have Mari Sullivan and Lori Medina here. We always start out, there's a short clip, short segment. So we start out with our rapid fire question of the week. A lot of you probably heard Donald Trump is starting up talking about Bill Clinton's extramarital um, adventures, and he had this to say this week on Sean Hannity. What about what Clinton's done? How big an issue should that be in the campaign? For example, I I looked at the New York Times. Are they going to interview Juanita Broderick? Are they going to interview Paula Jones? Are they going to interview Kathleen Willey? In one case, it's about exposure. In another case, it's about groping and fondling and touching against a woman's will. And rape. And rape. Okay, so the R word came up, obviously, in this Trump interview uh, about Bill Clinton. And so I just want to start with Lori tonight and just say, does Donald Trump bringing up Bill Clinton's extramarital conduct and the R word rape, does it hurt Trump or hurt Hillary in this race? Listen, this is presidential politics and all is fair in love and war. And this is war. This is a war of egos. This is a war of ideology. We know this is a war. So for Trump to bring this up, absolutely, it's fair. Now, the sad part about it is that Trump has some personal issues in his background that we all know about. 
and uh, that are quite unfortunate. So he doesn't have quite the moral standing to be fighting on this, but absolutely he needs to be bringing this up. He needs to remind, especially uh, the people like us that, that lived through all that disaster of the 90s and, uh, you know, all, all the, you know, the Monica Lewinsky, all of that horrible stuff that we had to live through. But just as importantly, the millennials need to learn about it because they weren't alive. They didn't experience it. Uh, they need to know about it. And so, yes, 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 Donald, I agree with him. I can't believe I'm saying that. <laughs> I know. Yeah, folks, Somebody you, call uh, the papers, yeah, Lori. Folks, folks, you heard it here first. <laughs> I agree that Donald Trump should be talking about uh, 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 Bill Clinton's uh, immortal character. Mari Sullivan, what do you say? Uh, Lori, I think um, it's very interesting, this particular area in this question, because Trump is a playboy, and that's baked into the cake. He's been very honest about it. Let's contrast the, that to Bill Clinton. And let's also contrast that to the Democrats who are very much in favor of believing women in cases of alleged sexual assault and rape, unless the perpetrator is a Mr. Bill Clinton, then you can forget about it. Then those women are trashed. And who are they trashed by? The media sycophants, the people that are the Hillary and Bill entourage. And let's face it, the Dems owe Hillary a lot. She backed up Bill with the Mona Lewinsky scandal. And she's been collecting on that debt for over 18 years. You know, it's so interesting. The term I heard someone use about Bill Clinton is said, why can't he get away with just being the lovable rogue? Well, first of all, he's not lovable. He's just grotesque to me. I agree. Yeah. But, you know, I will say to me, I agree with both of what, everything that you guys had to say. I think that, you know, the conduct of a person running for president, pretty much everything in your background is going to come up. Yep. Now, in the case of Donald Trump, you know, the New York Times tried this article this past week. They ran an article. It was really long. I, I never read it, actually. It was a long article. It was uh, listing out every single person he had, five or six women or more who had been interviewed and saying he had, you know, he had in some way been unfair and treated them poorly and been kind of piggish. But it really backfired the New York Times. They had at least two and I think four of them saying, that's not what I said. That's not what I meant. It's not wasn't like that. So Donald Trump, you know, he never pretends to be a choir boy. It's another thing. To me, I thought when I first heard that, it's like, it's not a hit piece because no one thinks he's a choir boy. I mean, he never ran. That's not his life. Nobody thinks he's a choir boy and he's not a choir boy. And uh, here's the other thing that's going to hit pretty soon. And uh, I read several articles about this week is Bill Clinton took not 11 flights with sex Uh. offender Jeffrey Epstein in the plane is the Lolita Express, and they're going to the Lolita Island. And I leave that to the listener's imagination as to what goes on with underage girls there. Bill Clinton was on that Lolita Express plane 26 times. Just imagine if that was Newt Gingrich. Go ahead. Oh, just imagine. And uh, the bottom line is Trump is ahead in the polls. For the first time, he now leads the average of national polls. And here's what Jake Tapper uh, tweeted today. He has gone up 11 percentage points uh, since the last poll. That's a huge jump for Donald Trump. The basic, uh, the latest WAP poll, ABC News poll with Trump up 46-44 represents an 11-point swing towards Trump. So I think this honest talk about what the Clintons are all about is... Uh, it ain't people hurting are, Yeah, people are ready to hear Clinton, Bill Clinton is a nasty pervert. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. He is perversion on wheels. And we had to live through that in the 90s. And we've had to hear of all of his escapades. And quite frankly, I'm sick of it. Because all it does is is drive our morals as a country down. Yes. 
you know, as a nation. I just, I think it's horrible. And how about Hillary, you know, the enabler, and the Democrat Party enabling this behavior and sweeping everything yep. he does under the rug? That's exactly what I jumped to. We have about 10 seconds. Is I think this is mostly relevant to Hillary's character. She is an enabler. She has been just fine with his behavior. Her whole marriage is a farce. It's a fraud. Yep. Yep. When your husband has had, and he recently, Clinton Bragg recently, he's had something in the range of 2,000 women. Sick. Yeah, I mean, so this is not a guy who is a model citizen, and their marriage him. is not a marriage. Come back after. We're going to talk about should women get in the military, be drafted in the military? No, is my opinion. Come back after. We'll talk about it. And welcome back, ladies. Can we talk? We're in our second hour roundtable with the famous Mari Sullivan, Lori Medina, and you know, we talk in the show a lot about the right and the wrong idea of equality for women because I am really, I'm, I'm a lawyer by background and I love practicing law. I love, I actually like law school, but don't tell anybody. I actually enjoyed it. And it's a really interesting thing because I really want women to have absolute equality and access to education and, and, and be treated fairly in the workplace. I just don't want the busybody government sticking their nose in to tell employers how much to pay you, which we're going to hit in the last section with Obama's new uh, overtime regulations. But in this section, I want to talk, we, we noticed this um, story that came out about whether the big issue being discussed in Washington was whether women should be included in the selective service, like eventually being led to whether women should draft, be drafted to serve in the military service. So Lori Medina is going to, she never has any opinions, but no. I think she has an opinion on this. Uh, yeah, just a couple. Um, well, you know, Debbie, what, what kind of started this whole thing off um, is that last December, uh, Defense Secretary Ash Carter, part of the Obama administration, lifted the ban on women on in frontline combat. That happened last December. And that kind of opened the door to the discussion of women being drafted. And, you know, back when I was a kid, I remember the liberals or the Democrats, whatever they were, you know, their progressive, whatever their name was at the time, uh, that they would say, call for women in the draft. And But they would do it with the intention as an anti-war statement trying to uh, trying to say that if if they got every all the women to be drafted then everyone would be against war and there'd be no war i mean oh, you remember okay. remember that was remember that's what I, it was had, yeah. back when we were young okay so now it's it's the pushes again of women and and what and what this is is women when they turn 18 just like boys do when they turn 18 uh, they register with the Selective Service. And so the the discussion here is about women registering when they turn 18. Um, now, the interesting thing is, is when we had one of the many uh, president GOP presidential debates, it was interesting. This, this issue was actually brought up. And I practically fell out of my office chair while I was live <laughs> tweeting the whole debate uh, when when Jeb Bush... Marco Rubio and of course, you know, dopey Chris Christie all agreed. <laughs> well, sorry guys, I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> well, he friends. is anyway. Uh, that all three of them jumped in saying that they agreed with women, you know, being drafted. And I- I'm not kidding. I-, I about fell over. I could not believe I was actually watching a GOP presidential debate, and three of them on the stage were saying that. And the only reason more didn't jump in is because they weren't allowed the opportunity to, to answer the question. Well, since then, this is because again more of a discussion um, and. And unfortunately, it's more Republicans that are bringing this up. 
Uh, just recently, a few weeks ago, as you brought up, Debbie, John McCain slipped a provision into a defense bill allowing for women to register with Selective Service. And uh, Mike Lee put forth an amendment to strike it down. And the uh, Mike Lee's amendment didn't pass because the Democrats voted along with John McCain. And I want to list the other Republicans because we need to go yes. on record with who, who voted for this, uh, who voted to have women register with Select Service so that they could be drafted. Uh, John McCain, Kelly Iote of Maine, Senator, uh, J- uh, Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, Senator Deb Fisher of Nebraska, Senator Tom Tillis of Nor- North Carolina, Dan Sullivan of Alaska, and, of course, our little friend Lindsey Graham in South Carolina had These to vote. These are U.S. Senators. Ha- yes, Republican U.S. Senators, U.S. Senators. Republican U.S. Senators that voted for this along with the Democrats. So... Um, my question is, why are all of a sudden all of these Republicans having this concern? Why are they thinking about this? What has changed? Um, you know, I, I'm going to say four words here. And I think hopefully... They're not four-letter words, right? No, <laughs> these are not four-letter words. These are four words. And I'm hoping that this will set the tone that I believe this conversation should be about. And really, it, it, it goes off what you said earlier, Debbie. Equality is not sameness. Equality is not sameness. Being equal, being treated equally, does not mean you're the same. Men and women, we can be treated equally. We can have an equal partnership in a marriage. We can work in a work environment and be equal. But guess what, guys? We are not the same. There is nothing same about men and women. I mean, physiologically, we're different. I mean, we we have different concerns. We have different things. We are not the same. And so putting women in combat is one of the worst ideas there could ever be, ever. And it's a choice now, though, right, Lori? It, they can choose to be in combat. Am I correct in that? Well, we, women can choose to join the military, but um, this is, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to jump well, in. Well, oh. they can, well, there's two different issues. Yeah. Okay. And before, they were linked together, and that was women being on the front lines, and now this second one is women being drafted. That is not their choice, Murray. For them to be drafted. Right. right. For I mean, my if, little, if we had to sign up. For right. my little girls to have to sign up a selective service at 18, I'll tell you what, I'm out of it. I'm right. out of here. Lori, Lori, I, right. I understand the <laughs> issue. Out. But am I correct in my understanding that right now the way the, the, the military has been social engineered by the Obama White House is that women can... Uh, uh, choose to be in combat. Am they I can right seek, or wrong they can in seek that? to be qualified. Yes. They can seek yes. to be qualified to be in combat. Yeah. Yes. Which completely concerns me from a common sense standpoint because I do know and I've read military uh, experts talk about how they feel that this will endanger the male troops to have women in combat with them for okay. many, many issues that are too long to outline here. Yep. Well, I, you know, I'm going to say something. I think this is the opposite of manhood. I mean, really, what? I mean, when you think of manhood, aren't they here? I mean, men at a very basic level are to protect us and to protect women and children. And for the women to have to go and fight, for them to be drafted, it's unconscionable. This is a moral issue, guys. This is not um, a national security issue. This is a moral issue. And let me let me read to you Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. He said, any major change to who is required to register with Selective Service requires serious consideration and must focus squarely on ensuring America remains the strongest military in all of the world. So he is linking those two things together. They are not linked together. They are mutually exclusive. Whether or not women 
are drafted and us having a strong military, those two things are not linked. We should not have women (laughs) drafted and we should have a strong military. You know, Lori, this is the slippery slope that the liberal agenda gets us to. These kind of arguments and and questions that just tear us apart. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing. One is to be sure we finish the legislative story. The House lawmakers struck that amendment requiring yes. women to to, to uh, sign up for the draft. But, you know, I love this because what really gets to are, I think, one of the kind of cultural issues that flows out of it is we have become so bizarrely confused by the LGBT and the transgender, all that stuff. Absolutely. That we, can, we can't be honest as human beings right. to say what you just said. Women are actually different than yes. men. As a whole, women are far weaker physically. Yes. We are not as strong. We're not as large. We're not as agile. We're not as, we just aren't as strong as men. And basically, military fighting, especially the on the ground combat infantry, yep. it requires strength. Yep. We used to be honest about that. Um, I don't know. You said you had some other question. I, I thought another point. No, no. To... The other, my question is for, for you ladies is so in M- McCain, John McCain has experienced the worst of what can happen to any soldier, right? He, I mean, Captured. experienced the horrible prisoner of war experience. And yet he is a husband and a, a, has a daughter. Why would John McCain want this or even consider for this to be uh, come into law? Okay, I have a, an answer that's not all that nice, but here's what I really think. I think John McCain at this point is, he's even beyond his maverick years. He's grasping at straws, trying to figure out how to be relevant in Washington. He's facing a primary challenge by Dr. Kelly Ward, who is just in the latest poll beating him in Arizona. He is... He's trying to get something that makes him appear, appear like he's with the kind of the with it the most. And, and, you know, he's never in Washington. This Maverick label, I've always hated it because it's both like a cutesy name. He's more drawn to left wing ideas. The older he gets, the longer he serves. This is a popular left wing. Yeah, why not be equal? But you know what's a really interesting con, con, counter to all this is Israel. We can finish this, but Israel has everybody serves and women serve, I don't know about in combat, but they serve as pilots and everyone serves there. So it, it has worked in some other place. I don't support it, but it has worked there. It, it has like, worked. And I think in certain cultural environments, it can work. And Israel is an example of that. But once again, I just have to think that this is a great, great issue for America to be faced with, whether women should be drafted, because this is what happens when liberals decide top down Washington, this is the way our this is the way our, our government is going. This is the way our military is going to look. It doesn't matter about national security, and it doesn't matter about the security of our own troops. I know that's the whole thing. That the bottom line of the military is it is there to keep America safe, not for social engineering. We have thirty seconds. Okay, so so for all these Republican uh, politicians out there, I want to tell you guys, you need to go back and think about the founding of our country. And, and understand what we stand for and have a foundation of in belief. Because if you knew what you believed and understood why you believed it, then you would not be thinking about this. It would be an, a very clear answer. And if you, listeners, if you got any arguments with me, you can tweet me at, at Texas Tea Party Mom. <laughs> Okay, and on that note, we're going to turn after the next break to talk about the uh, latest effort of Washington to control where you live and who lives near you in the AFFH. Come back after our break. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. It's funny, I have a friend who's texting me during this show. (laughs) He texted 
no passion here or something funny like that. Anyway, we uh, are so glad you joined us tonight. And your Ladies Can We Talk is all about the idea at the end of the day of preserving the goodness and greatness and uniqueness of America. It is encouraging people in every generation, including our generation right now, to embrace why America is exceptional and great and then to hold on to every building block that made it this way. Well, we're going to turn uh, change the subject entirely. I want to talk about this interesting thing that was discussed this week and actually we've touched on this other times on this show but there have been some pretty big developments this week let me start by saying you know how if you drive and in fact i've visited cities where obviously they didn't create a zoning board soon enough and so you have you know a gas station next door to a lovely restaurant or you have a you know just just businesses that don't belong together but Ultimately, in civilized society, we discovered the greatness, the great idea of zoning boards, of just saying zoning. So we're going to have this is a commercial area and this is a residential area. And this is maybe there's areas for churches or museums, but we make life pleasanter for everybody by zoning boards. And so um, and I think we count on them to be thoughtful and to know where various things work. However, uh, in the uh, overwhelming wisdom of the federal government under President Obama um, and the American left that just loves to control everything about you, including the kind of shoelaces you buy, they are on the subject now of kind of taking away the zoning board's responsibility and honestly their privilege and right and obligation uh, with respect to placing low-income housing uh, in areas that make sense. So Mari's going to tell you, we, Mari loves this subject. We've been on this subject before of a federal regulation, but you take it away. Debbie, um, I do love this subject because it's now a reality for uh, everybody in America. And I bet very few people have ever even heard of affirmatively furthering fair housing. AFFH. Yeah, right. because it's a back-ended Obamacare, huge, expansive program that uh, Obama is pushing uh, on us through HUD. And basically what it is, it's not enough that we have equal opportunity in housing matters. He wants there to be equal outcomes. Well, how do you do that? Because he's all about fairness and not individualism. He's all about collectivism and not local governance and we deciding what our neighborhoods are going to look like. No, we're not capable of that because HUD has declared that the nation's suburbs aren't diverse enough. So the remedy that Obama has come up through HUD is to push Americans into living how and where the federal government wants us to. There's two men who have been on the forefront of stopping. This HUD regulation has been promulgated. It is reality. Affirmatively furthering fair housing is Obama's top-down utopian dream of exactly how every, and it's hard to believe, folks, but I'm telling you the truth, it's his top-down how it's going to look, how your neighborhood is going to look, how, how dense it's going to be, what car you're going to drive, how you're going to get to work. They want to um, have a lot of control over 1,200 neighborhoods in our country. Now, here's what Representative Gosser said about this program. There's nothing more fundamentally wrong than restricting personal freedom of where we can live. And here's what Senator Mike Lee said. These new regulations are designed to give unelected anonymous bureaucrats power to pick your next-door neighbor. And that's basically it in a nutshell. Now, both these gentlemen have promulgated wonderful uh, bills in Gosser in the House, Mike Lee this week in the Senate, to stop funding for this horrible social engineered neighborhood utopian dream that Obama and the leftists want to foist on us. And unfortunately, our GOP majority did not pass this 
defunding measure of Mike Lee's. And this is another example of where we're not using the ability to cut off the purse strings to these Obama nightmares that he's trying to foist on us. And it's another reason why people are so frustrated with the establishment going along with every liberal pipe dream that Obama wants to make reality. That is so well said. I'm sorry, what is the House guy's name? The, who's... Representative Gosser. Like... Representative uh, Gosser. He's from Arizona. Now, the two little pieces of good news here. His amendment is still in the House, and he wants to defund AFFH also. And, of course, the next president could completely just say AFFH is no longer going to be enforced by HUD. So this is going to be a presidential election issue because in communities all through this country where this has become HUD getting in their, their, their local zoning business, there's tremendous pushback. And then these communities are fighting the federal government. Imagine the cost of that. You've got to have lawyers and meetings and educate people. It's, it is just awful what they want to do to our freedoms of movement and choice and the economic engines of liberty that end poverty is not low-income housing. It's not block grants. It's not $10 trillion of, of big government spending and regulations and taxes. It's getting government off our race or our economies back. So there's jobs and there's competition and there's innovation. That is what's going to make this country productive and get people out of poverty. Absolutely. You know, all of this, I was thinking when you're talking that this story about this federal regulation under HUD affirmatively furthering fair housing, AFFH, it really has so many tentacles that touch on the greatness of America. One of those tentacles just being, or aspects of it all, is the notion that the federal government's even talking about where people get to live this this idea the constitution had a very limited federal government and i don't recall anything in the constitution authorizing federal government to say who has to live where who what neighborhoods must have certain low-income housing things but this is so one aspect of this is just this need to have someone a radical transformation of the federal government to pull it back to the limits that the constitution set for it because this would solve the whole problem. States would then have the zoning authority they have, but the federal government, in the middle of it all, the social engineering, the gurus, the smartest people on the planet running the country up there, and so that, that's one whole aspect of it. It's just extremely frustrating. Another aspect that is just makes it so difficult, I've been to a community meeting about one of these issues, is it's one of those issues that the left, instead of being able to respond to the points that conservatives would make, like don't local zoning boards know better where, where they should be located? Don't you think it's really not the federal government's business? Why would we, you know, and, and instead, the argument, the left, because they can't respond to the substance, if they resort to the accusatory, oh, you just don't want people who don't look like you. Oh, this is just because mm-hmm. you're bigoted, you're racist, you're intolerant. You just want to have poor people somewhere else, not near you. It is just infuriating because you can't talk about the really important ideas of that the people... Uh, who live in the, who um, are the recipients of this? These this. I, I'm sorry. I'm getting. I'm going on and on. You have your waving your well, hand, but it's a very frustrating thing because it you, is very frustrating. And uh, there are there are federal there are HUD studies that show moving people uh, into low income housing uh, projects in certain neighborhoods that doesn't get people out of pro- pro- poverty. Three billion dollar HUD uh, block grants uh, to end poverty doesn't end poverty. We're $20 trillion in debt. What we need to end poverty is jobs and good schools and all the things people that vote for Democrats need and want. But they're not going to get it from the Democrats because the Democrats don't want you. 
out in the world being successful because then you won't vote for them. You don't need them. Yeah. Well, this is really, thanks for bringing this up, Mari, because really this is the Obamacare for the neighborhoods is really yeah, what this is. Yep. Um, you know, this is the almighty government telling us peons that we don't know how to live. We don't know where to live. We don't know where to put our, our churches and our gas stations and everything else that they have to tell us because we're not, we're incapable and, and otherwise we're bigots. You're right. Um, you know, this is just infuriating and, you know, it, it's just frustrating because I, I feel like at some point our local communities, our county governments, and our state governments, quite frankly, need to be pushing back on the federal government saying, I don't want any more of your stinking money. That would, to, you, wouldn't I mean, solve that's, all this? Yeah. It, well, well, because no that's thanks. the transgender thing. I mean, that's the, you know, the bathroom thing. I mean, all of it is, you know. Oh, yes. I, I don't want any more of your stinking money. And if that means we have to live on less, I'm okay with it. Well, don't forget, Lori, it's the taxpayer money that you're throwing out the window. I mean, the, the, the I money you we'll get take is it. taxpayer I, money. I get it. But you're right. They've got us right where they want us. Right. It's all this we want those block grants. We want this money to do, and it goes to special interests. It doesn't help the people that it needs to help. It's been proven time and time again. We've had 50 years of the Great Society, and where are we? We're, we're right back we're where no we better. started from. Yep. So what we really want is, hey, let's look at the issues and let's look at the facts. We don't need social engineered neighborhoods to get people out of poverty. We need less government. We need less regulations. We need, we need less taxes. <laughs> we need, yes. we need yes. more active churches. We, we need, need more <laughs> active churches. We need less public unions saying that they don't want competition right. in our schools. schools. Yeah. There's all kinds of issues that we could take on to solve these problems, but not if you're going to always say it's because America is bad-hearted and it right. has systemic racism. That's not right. Absolutely true. I love this subject. And, you know, honestly, maybe we'll pick it up again after this next break because I feel like there are a lot of points we couldn't get to. But this is a really, it's a neighborhood country changing thing and people don't see it coming. And you wake up one day and say, what happened to our state, our community, our county? And, and what happened was we weren't, we were asleep at the wheel. So we're going to pick up, talk a little more after the break. Um, and then I want to tell you about uh, how your overtime pay might be about to increase, but you might lose your job after, because of another Obama administration regulation coming up after the break. Can you and welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk for our final segment again. Doggone it. This two hours goes by so quickly. Before we launch into the 16 subjects we have for this last segment, I do want to take a moment and thank the sponsor for this show. The sponsor for Ladies Can We Talk is GC Works. Could not do the show without them. Grateful beyond words for the support of GC Works. And GC Works, if you don't know this company, is a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology and deliver innovative approaches in the oil and gas industry. Great industry in the great state of Texas. So thank you to GC Works. Okay, so in this final segment, I just want to wrap back. We talked about this HUD regulation, affirmatively furthering fair housing. And the basic idea is the federal government is going to order that all the states that receive HUD block grants and will be building low-income housing, that the federal government is going to tell the states or the counties where that housing must be placed. And they're 
choosing the communities where they're going to place this low-income housing based on race and ethnicity and, and income level. They're essentially trying to say, we are fighting white the existence of white suburbs, which is their depiction, which isn't even true. The suburbs are not all white. But anyway, I wanted to say this one thing that I think it's so easy for the left to um, demean and mock criticism of this because they will play the race card and say, oh, you just don't want um, that regulation to be in place because you don't want to have people who don't look like you living near you. And that is so evil. It's evil, an evil accusation. It's a false accusation. But here's a true idea to really think about. What I think happens in America, and, and you know, 99% of America is people set out to try to make their lives better. They work hard. I know we did. You know, my, we did not come from money. Both my, my husband and I lived in very, you know, middle class at best neighborhoods, lower middle class. We worked hard. We went to law school. We got in debt to go to law school. We worked hard as lawyers. We paid off our debt. We made our life better. And every generation is like that. And so the American dream is alive and well for people willing to participate in it. And so what happens when you have neighborhood people who've worked hard and to make life better and they've gotten to a neighborhood where you have, um, you know, you have better schools. You assume you have better schools because of the income level. You have uh, a safer area. You don't have inner city crime. And to just plop in uh, low-income housing, which all the studies will tell you, brings with it crime, brings with it danger to the community because you have you just have people who aren't, they, they didn't fight for the American dream to get there. This doesn't mean we don't help low-income people. We do, and this country is a profoundly generous country like that. But all of what the HUD, the thinking behind the HUD kind of regulation is entirely dismissing the notion that the American dream has created lovely areas for people to live who are willing to work hard. It is embracing that idiotic expression that someone said that everyone who's poor in America is just lost out on life's lottery. Now, I mean, it's just a dismissing of the the value in the place of hard work bringing achievement and success. And these are hard arguments to say in response to mocking, but this, you know, the role of the federal government to be placing low-income housing neighborhoods, they choose if that's not Big Brother, Uncle Sam, overbearing, uh, you know, micromanaging of Americans' lives, it is a trend toward the loss of liberty in this country that the federal government would even think of doing that. And so we'll be watching this. Maybe the house thing will um, will fix it. Okay, there are a bunch of stories I wanted to get to. We're going to run out of time. but So I want to get this one because we were all laughing about it in the break. And I, I think it is, I have to say, as my listeners know, um, I was not a Donald Trump supporter. And, I'm, you know, if somehow Ted Cruz could still pull it out and get the nomination, I'd be thrilled. But Donald Trump is doing some good things. And among them is he has just crushed the glass ceiling on a lot of politically correct issues. We talked about one earlier in the show today where he has raised the question about why do we continue to bring large numbers of Islamic immigrants to America, given that we're watching what happens in Germany and London and Austria and all over Europe. Well, one other thing he said today, and uh, he said recently, which I thought was so dang funny, and we should talk about Hillary too, but Hillary announced that she was going to put Bill Clinton, and when she, if she wins the presidency, she'll put Bill Clinton in charge of the economy, which I think we have some choice comments on that statement. But Donald Trump, to his ever-loving, humorous credit, he mocked Bill Clinton this past Friday by openly wondering if Clinton would bring the Energizer back with him to Washington. So if you don't know what the Energizer was, it'll be on the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page. But the Energizer was the Secret Service's nickname for the woman Bill Clinton was having an ongoing affair with 
up until recently, still is apparently, when Hillary leaves the House, Bill Clinton's Secret Service, they know to notify the Hillary Secret Service, okay, Hillary's out of the House, and Bill Clinton's people can bring in the Energizer, who's involved in ongoing um, relationship of some level of intimacy with with uh, Bill Clinton. So, I mean, the Energizer is a funny moniker that actually the Secret Service came up with. And, and she is actually also, she has some interest in an energy company that got money from the federal government and she blew, I mean, just silly, one of those, you know, silly non-existent energy alternatives that blew through the money. But um, I think it was, I, I appreciate that about Donald Trump. Nothing's off the table with him. And I actually think it's kind of refreshing. So yeah, why I does the think. smartest woman in the world need her husband to bail her out? That's my question. She's desperate. That's the better question. I mean, I mean, I had to say the energizer thing. I don't know why it just struck me as so dang funny. But yes, it is a very, very good point. Hillary Clinton, smartest woman in the world. And the truth is, is because as you were saying in the break, her poll numbers are in the tank. She she is not appealing to voters. She's already looking like she's trending. She's going to lose to Trump. And so she's looking for something that sends a signal, you know, about her strength. And so she has to go look at my husband yeah, and Bill is so past the uh, jazzy stage in his life. And let me also point out this little fact. You know, they always trump Bill Clinton's economy, Bill Clinton's economy, like he's some genius. You know what the genius of the 1990s was? It had nothing to do with Bill Clinton. That's right. It had everything with going from the industrial That's age right. to the information age and the absolute Bust out economy in Silicon Valley because of the internet. And because of Ronald and the Reagan, Reagan tax cuts. Right. Yes. The Reagan right. tax yes. cuts. I mean I mean this will be this will be argued for all time. Yeah. Probably our grandchildren's grandchildren will argue about this in public school whether the nineties were great because of uh, economy wise, because of Reagan or because Bill I hope Clinton they're was even brilliant. having an argument about that. Okay? And we could yeah. have that yeah. Yeah. economy again and we could have the innovation if government would Get off our racehorse economy, as Brian Westbury says, with big taxes, big regulations, and yeah. big government. You know, I was going to say, I said in that we do a, a weekly email. And if you're interested in getting on the email list, you can email me at ladieskenwetalk at gmail.com. We do a show email just announcing the subjects and the topics. And I put some topics in we didn't get to, one being the overtime new regulations. And I do, I'm a former labor lawyer. I love this kind of stuff. I love getting in the weeds on this, but I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, especially as close to the end of the show. But the short story is the Obama administration recently issued regulations relating to overtime pay and essentially made it so that millions more Americans something in the range of 42 million Americans will now be eligible for overtime pay, meaning that if they work more than whatever their set hours are, even though they're salaried, that they will have to be paid overtime if they're beyond the 40 hours a week. So this is one of these vacuous, like we talked about with Professor Michael Cox last week, vacuous economic things where you issue an edict. It's like raising the minimum wage to $100 an hour. You can say it, you can put it in an order or a law, but you can't change the laws of economics. So I've already read about one company has announced that the new, whatever the new threshold is uh, for people who must be paid overtime, they're just, they're just reducing their employees pay to the level so that the overtime they'll still end up paying net at the end of the day the same amount of money with the over overtime by reducing their pay companies aren't just going to surrender their money just because obama waved his magic wand okay before we leave debbie i just have to say i'm so thrilled and excited trump came out this week with a list of potential supreme court nominees and i have to say i'm so excited because i had a fellow baylor bear on the list uh, a friend a friend of mine uh supreme court texas supreme court justice 
versus Don Willett, as Ted Cruz lovingly refers to as Donnie Willett. Yeah. And uh, listen, this guy is the greatest guy ever, and he is the conservative stronghold on the Texas Supreme Court, and he was on the list. He and I went to Baylor. I, I believe Don was right a year ahead of me, uh, but just a super individual. And if you want to follow the greatest tweeter in the world, yes. follow Don Willett. He is at Justice Willett. I mean, he's so great. New York Hilarious Times. Tweets. New York Times even wrote an article about how great of a tweeter he was. I mean, he was he's fantastic. So follow Donnie Willett. Yeah, it was a great thing to see that list. I, I mean, I would say Donald Trump is trying to signal I'm getting more serious. I'll tell you two other things which I really appreciate Donald Trump said recently because they are kind of you know he's he kind of he has a good nose or something for what is on people's minds. But one thing he's, you know, he did during the campaign, which I just hated when he was using his tactic to attack the other, his fellow Republicans, he gets a name or a term and he uses it over and over and over. But I love that he's just, he's settled on crooked Hillary. Love it. Yeah. Crooked Hillary. And the reason is because everyone hears it and no one goes, yeah. why would he say that? Right. No one, right. no one goes. I wonder why. <laughs> I mean, well, just it's like lo, low energy, the Clinton Crime I mean, Foundation, the yeah. email scandal, Benghazi, uh, straight out lying to our dear families that uh, she never said it was caused by a video. I mean, the woman is got one destination in mind. She deserves the presidency. And here's what I predict: I think Trump's going to win, and I think Hillary's headed for a little white rubber room replica <laughs> of the White House, where they're going to have to highly okay. sedate her. <laughs> And tell her, yes, Madama President, Mr. Ambassador is here to see you. Thank you. <laughs> oh my gosh. That was your best Sunset oh, Boulevard okay. uh, reenactment okay. there. <laughs> well, you know what else? I, I thought another clever thing that uh, Don Trump said recently, he was talking about Hillary Clinton and he calls it her soft on crime plans because right away people go, oh no, she's soft on crime. But he came up with heartless Hillary. And it was really a good twist because Hillary Clinton talks a lot about releasing federal, she's going to perpetuate President Obama's releasing of many federal prison inmates. So, you know, that has a sympathetic tone to some people. Then, well, gee, that's really good. Probably too many people are locked up, blah, blah. But Donald Trump turned it right around and just talk, called her heartless Hillary and talked about the poor victims of the crimes that who will, that they'll, you know, crimes be committed by those people who have been released. Okay. This person over there in the booth turned the music on. It's so irritating. No, I think it must be near the end of the show. So I want to say, first of all, thank you so much for tuning in. Ladies, can we talk? We love talking with you every Sunday. We love having you on. If you want to follow us on Facebook, please do it. Ladies, can we talk? I want to thank our guests tonight, Senator DeMint and Stacey Hawk, thanking that guy behind the booth who turned the music on, Neil West, and my my buddies, Lori Medina and Mari Sullivan, and tune in every week to Ladies, Can We Talk? Oh, and check out our website, ladieskinwetalk.org. It's so cool. Love talking with you. Come back every week, and remember to always speak up for America, and come here where we talk truth about America. Thanks for listening to Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to ladieskinwetalk.org. Ladies Can We Talk, truth about America.